Unity. Unity is something that, that we all say we want in some way. And really, we say we want it because we see what happens when there's division. When, when wars happen and people split up. When, when, when relationships dissolve. When families fall apart. When countries implode. We think, man, unity. When can we have unity? Where, why can't we just get along? We, we have this desire for unity. We, we have a sense in us that we should be unified, that we, we, we shouldn't have so much conflict. We have this desire. And we talked about last week, that as we looked at the first part of Jesus' prayer in John 17, we talked about how when Jesus prays, as He's praying for us, He prays His prayer out loud so that we can learn about how He prays for us. So we can understand how Jesus prays for us. We, we talked about how Jesus gives us this motivation for doing this in John chapter, in chapter 17, verse 13, when Jesus says, but now I have come to you, he's praying to the Father, that these things I speak in the world, in other words, I'm saying these things out loud so these guys can hear me, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so one of his motivations for praying this prayer out loud to the Father was that those who heard it would understand and those who read it would understand what it means to have his joy and how we experience the same joy that God the Son, that's Jesus, has always experienced with God the Father. He wants us to experience that joy. That's what we talked about last week. Well, in the same way, he wants us to experience his unity. Not just this idea of let's just all get along, let's just all sort of be one somehow, we don't understand how it's going to work, but a unity that He provides, a unity that He defines. He wants us to experience this unity. And that's what we're really going to see today, how He works that out. And there's three main things that I want to bring out to you guys about how we experience God's unity. And the first one is this, we experience the unity of Jesus, listen, as we believe the same things. Now look at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone. In other words, Father, I'm not just praying for these 11 disciples that are with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. That's any of us who have believed what the Bible says about Jesus, believe what the apostles, those who are with Jesus, said about Jesus. If we've believed Jesus because of their words, this prayer is for us. But it also shows us something. It shows us that that when we talk about believing the same truth, we're talking about a truth that was revealed through these apostles' teachings. So these 11 men who spent three and a half years following Jesus, the things they learned from Jesus, the things they learned of Jesus, they wrote these things down or they taught these things to people for the next several decades. And those things, those truths about Jesus that they communicated, that they had the unique responsibility to communicate, those things became the basis for what we believe as Christians. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm praying for those who have believed through the apostles' doctrine, through their teaching. In the book of Acts, you, there's, it's, the, it's the record of what the first Jesus followers did really more specifically what God did through them. 
And in the book of Acts, we see that the early church continued steadfastly. They, they were committed to, to certain things. And the first on the list is they committed steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine. And what that means is they listened and they learned from what the apostles said and wrote. They saw the apostles as the unique authority for truth. Jesus called himself the truth. Jesus prayed, we saw last week, that we would be sanctified or set apart by the truth. That truth came through the apostles. Now, this is important because even though there, there are differences in different Christian traditions about things, one of the things that actually makes us Christian is that we believe God's Word. We believe that what Jesus says about how we know Him is true. We trust Jesus, and if He says, here's how you understand truth, you understand it through what the apostles taught, then we believe Him and say, yes, we believe that. So we always go back to the standard, which is what God has said through His apostles. Now, this is the unity that we have to have. And if, if you think about it logically, there's no other way we can have unity. You can't just have unity for the sake of unity. It doesn't work. Because say, we want to rally around unity. Okay, how does that work? What are we unified around? And Jesus is saying, this is how you can experience my unity. You unify around what I've said through my apostles, what my apostles, my sent ones have recorded for you to know. That's why we trust this book. We trust this book because Jesus said we should trust these men who wrote it. Now he goes on to say, in verse 21, he says, that they may, this is his motivation, he's praying, Father, that they would, they would believe through the word of my apostles, the word of my sent ones, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. So when Jesus talks about being one with the Father, in this case here, I think he's talking about being one relationally. That Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, the Son of the Father. And there's a oneness between them that is hard for us to get our heads around. This truth that the Bible teaches that there's one God in three persons. It's, it's hard for us to get our head around it. We really can't get our head around it. But we see this is the testimony of Scripture that Jesus is one us to see there's a relational unity. They have the same essence. They have the same character, but they're distinct persons. But it's that relationship that they have together that defines how we have a relationship with Him. We relate to God based on how the Father relates to the Son, what He's done. And the point is here, and we're talking about believing the same things, it's flowing from a relationship with God. It's not just that, okay, I have to understand everything there is to understand about the Scripture, and then we'll have unity. No, we have unity with God through Jesus. Jesus makes us in right relationship with God through His death and resurrection. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But what happens is, in that relationship, as we grow in that relationship, we grow in unity. It's not just understanding facts. It's about understanding Him, about understanding God, about relating to Him rightly. So we believe the same truth as it flows from our relationship with God. But also, if you look at the, the latter part of verse 21, he says this is the, uh, the other result of that, that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is praying that we would grow in unity, we would learn to experience his unity, as we believe the same truth that's been taught by the, the apostles that flows from our own relationship with God, but also, listen, that points to the truth of who Jesus is. 
See, see, if you don't get anything else today, understand this. Christianity is about Christ. It's not about the church. It's not about us. It's about Him. In fact, this is the thing that's really important for us to, to get. Get this. Christianity is not an it. It's a Him. <laughs> it's about Him. It's about a person. And so Jesus is saying, listen, his motive for praying this, his desire, what he wants to see happen is as they believe the same truth, they're believing the same truth about who God is, about how they relate to God, and they're one in that. They're committed to that together. They're committed to that same faith or basis of faith. And because of that, listen, they're pointing to the trustworthiness of Jesus. He's worthy to be trusted. See, we don't preach ourselves. Our message is, as Christians, it's not us. Hey, come, be, come become a Christian. Come join our church. Come join our gathering. Come experience us. That's not our message. Our message is come and see who Jesus is. See who Jesus is by what we say, but also by how we treat each other, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Now, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, as you might have known him, he wrote about the same kind of principle in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to this. It should be on the screen. Paul wrote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul was literally in prison when he wrote this. He says, I beseech you, or I beg you, I, I implore you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, he's talking about a calling there. It's not a calling like into ministry or into a certain vocation. He's talking about the call that Jesus gives to every one of us. Come follow me. The call to follow Jesus, to relate to God through Jesus. That's the calling he's talking about, Okay. He says, walk worthy of that. Live according to that calling. Listen, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Do you see what's happening there? Paul's saying, okay, I want you to walk with this God. You've been called to walk with Jesus, to relate to God through Jesus. And that needs to show itself in how you relate to one another. And this is why. Look what he says, verse 3, the end of that section. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not creating the unity of the Spirit, keeping it. Now, we won't get into it today, but later on in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he lays out these doctrinal truths, these truths about who God is and what God's done that we unify around. This is important for us to understand because what Paul's wanting us to see is that what he is, is writing in Ephesians is the same thing Jesus was praying in John 17. He's praying that we would have the same mind, that our unity would be built around. We understand the same God. We want to worship Him for who He really is, and we want to follow Him as He's revealed Himself in His Word, in, in right relationship with Him and with one another. So, so we, we can experience His unity, Jesus is praying, as we believe the same truth, but also, listen, as we mature into the same love. Look at verse 22. Jesus prays, in the glory that you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now remember we talked last week, if you guys were here last week, we talked about the word glory means, um, it means kind of the, the manifest character or what makes something uniquely valuable. And, and I use this analogy every time, but it's the best analogy is, so, so when we see like in the, in the book of Proverbs, the glory of a, of, an old, uh, of a young man is his strength, the glory of an old man is his gray hair. 
And the idea is when you're young, what is your unique value? Usually you're strong. And when you're old, what your unique value is not your gray hair, but the gray hair represents wisdom. So you're wise. That's your value. You've lived life. When you're older, when you're younger, you're strong. You can, you can pick up heavy things. <laughs> and so that's kind of the idea. So the glory, when Jesus says he's given them the glory, he's saying, I've shown them, Father, I've shown them, my disciples, the unique value of what you're like, the manifest character of what you like. I've shown them this. This is important. It's important because we're talking here about maturing to the same love, and we need to understand that this love is something that's been revealed by Jesus because it, through a relationship that he's initiated. He doesn't say, Father, I've given them this because they asked for it. Or, Father, I've, uh, they were begging to, to know you, and so then you sent me, and so here's what I've done what you've done. No, it was God who initiated the relationship with us by sending Jesus. God did this. He chose to do it. John 3.16, we all know that verse. Many of us have heard this verse before. Even if you're not a churchy person, you've probably heard this verse before. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Scripture doesn't say, for the world so loved God that he sent his son, but so God so loved the world that he sent his son. It's God who's initiated the relationship. It's God who said, I want you to know me. I want you to know my love. It's God who's initiated this. Jesus prayed, God, I've done what you've told me to. I gave them this glory, this manifest character that shows who you are. But then he goes on to pray, listen, in verse 23, he says, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. Has anybody here ever met a perfect Christian? I certainly haven't. <laughs> I'm certainly not one. So what does he mean when, when Jesus prays that it may be made perfect? Well, the word for perfect there, it's, it's often a word that used, means to mature. It means to grow up. That's why we're saying that this next point is as we mature into the same love, that's where unity comes from. And so we know that this is about love because he talks about love in, the, in the, the rest of the verse, which we'll get to in a second. But there's a reality here that we need to recognize that love is both the process and the goal of our maturity. So here's how we grow up. Here's what God says it looks like to be mature. Maturity is love. It is looking at other people and seeing their needs as more important than your own. It is laying down your life for somebody else. It is willing to tell someone the truth even when it hurts. That's love. He calls us to this kind of love. Now, this is a process. That's why he says that you may be made perfect, that you might grow in maturity. It's a process. We grow in love through loving. Now, if you're here today and you're just going, you know, I'm trying to love, I'm just not very good at it. Well, join the club. In fact, if you feel that way, if you feel like, I know I should love, but I'm not very good at loving people, that's probably a good sign that you're progressing in love. <laughs> because when you recognize that you don't love the way God loves, then you recognize, okay, this is why I need to grow. Because part of growth is recognizing what love looks like, and what love looks like is what we see in the relationship between Jesus and the Father. So when we don't love very well, and we recognize that we don't love very well, that's part of our growth. But listen, you know how you learn to love better? You love. So uh, some of you guys know that I work out a couple times a week with Pip. You know Pip, big rugby player Pip. A lesson in humility twice a week. He's a monster. He's so strong. The guy's so strong. And so we work out together, and sometimes I have to admit, it's so embarrassing. 
It really is, because he's so much stronger than me. And, and he, you know, bless him, he's really supportive and he encourages me. He doesn't laugh very often. Um, but sometimes I'll be there with this heavy weight on, on, on my chest and I'm like, oh, I'm like, just, the veins are pumping on my neck. And I'm, oh. He's like, come on, come on. And I'm like, I can't, I can't. He's like, you can't, I can't, I can't. And he has to help me. And it's like so humiliating. But you know what? If I don't do that, you know what? I won't get stronger. I won't get stronger. If you don't love, guess what you won't learn to do? To love. It's the process. Jesus is praying that we'd be made perfect. We'd grow in maturity. We'd grow in this process of loving. But guess what else? It's the goal. People say, what's heaven going to be like? You know, in one sense, I really don't know for sure what heaven's going to be like. Uh, I haven't been there yet. Um, Looking forward to being there. But we don't know what it's going to be like. But we do know it's going to be glorious. In fact, I want to talk more about that in a minute, so I'll wait. Love is both a process and a goal, and Jesus is praying that we would recognize that. We'd be made perfect. We'd grow as those who love God and love one another. He continues to say in verse 23, notice that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I want you to think about something for a minute. If you're a Jesus follower, if you're someone who's come to recognize that what Jesus did for you on the cross was enough to pay for your sins, and you've recognized that he really did literally raise from the dead, that's the good news. If you've come to believe that, you need to know something. Jesus says that if you believe that, if you trust in Christ for a right relationship with God, for God's forgiveness, for God's acceptance, if you trust in God for that, do you know what he says about you? He says that he loves you. God loves you as much as God loves Jesus. So we, we, we look at Jesus, we, we watch his life in the Gospels, and we see how he loved people, and we see how he did miracles, and we see how he served, and how he... He just sacrificed all the time. And we think, yeah, okay, we get why God would love Jesus. He did everything right. In fact, the testimony of Jesus by those who watched him was, he does all things well. So we understand why God would love Jesus, but do you realize that Jesus said that God loves you and me in the same, with the same love that he loves Jesus if we put our faith in Jesus? This love, this being in this position of love is there not because we get things right, but because Jesus got things right. He did everything perfectly right before God. Everything. He lived a perfect life. He was a perfect sacrifice. And what happens is when we put our faith in him, we're putting our faith in, yep, Jesus, you got it right. And God says, listen, then I count that for you as righteousness and I give you the same love that I give Jesus. This is why it's silly for us to keep trying to earn God's love. How can we earn it? How could we ever deserve this love? I want to be clear about something as well. The Father doesn't love Jesus because of what he did. The Father and the Son have always loved each other. We're going to see that in just a minute. But there's this reality that the Son, Jesus, did what the Father wanted because he knew the Father loved him and anything the Father commanded him to do was out of love. And he did this also, listen, because he knew 
that he loved the Father and he wanted to do whatever the Father would want for him. It's because the love that they already had, this permanent, eternal, always existed love that they had, that he chose to do all that he did. He came to this earth, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead. Because of that love. We are invited into that love. See, our unity comes from, listen, our our unity together, our being one comes from us maturing into this love. That means demonstrating our position as those who are loved like Jesus. Do you know what should motivate you to love the person next to you? Not because you have some sort of family relationship, not because you, you like the same foods or sports or hobbies, not because it's just a nice thing to do. No, what should motivate you is that you know you're so loved. This is what Jesus calls us to as his followers. L- listen to this. We read this a few months back when we were in John chapter 13, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Notice, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By all this, by, by this, I'm sorry, uh, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What identifies us as Jesus followers is not just how we love each other, but why we love each other. We love each other because we know we're so loved, and we know we're so loved not because we get it right, but because Jesus got it right. Jesus is praying that we'd experience this kind of unity as we mature in the same love. Now, this uh, last Friday and Saturday, Sarah and I were down in Kent doing a training for an organization called Oak Hall. They do these Christian holidays that are really cool. I really recommend you do an Oak Hall holiday. If you've not done one, they're great. And uh, we're doing this training thing. I I get to speak at these holidays and such. And, and, you know, these people, there's a, a group there, and they're from different backgrounds, different church backgrounds. Um, some of them are, are, are a bit more conservative than we would be, some are a bit more liberal than we would be, but we all agreed that this book is our authority. We all agreed that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We all agree that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. We all agree that love conquers all. And there was this great oneness that we experienced, even though we didn't even know each other. You know why? Because we knew, everyone was there, knew that they were loved and wanted to serve on these trips. It was, it was a, a meeting for those who speak and for those who serve on team, cook the food and lead the trips and all that. That we all wanted to sacrifice our holiday time. Why? Because we know we're loved, therefore we want to love. And there was this great unity among us. This is what God calls us to as local churches. This is what God calls us to as his people. This is what Jesus is praying for. So we, he prays that we, experience, we can experience his unity as we believe the same truth, as we mature into the same love, and lastly, listen, as we continue in the same hope. Hope. Jesus prays, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, that's us, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That phrase is a really important phrase, before the foundation of the world. What that means is, it's a phrase in the New Testament that means before God created anything else, before God created anything, 
it, it, what was there. Before God creates anything, what's there? Before God creates the universe, what's there? And what's there is God is there. In the beginning, God. That's how the scripture starts. Before there was anything else in the universe, God's always existed. And, and, and what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, before anything was created and all there was was God, he's saying, you love me then before the foundation of the world. That they had a relationship, God the Father, God the Son, that was from eternity past. This is why this is important. Because Jesus, is, when he's praying that they would be with me where I am, he's not talking about they are there with him. I mean, he's praying this prayer probably in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they are in that same area outside of Jerusalem when he's praying. He doesn't mean physically. He means when he ascends back into heaven, he's back with the Father in that, that eternal place. When he's there, he's saying, I want those disciples to be with me. This is important for, on a couple levels. One, it's important because we need to recognize that it's, this is what God wants. What, what Jesus prays is what God wants, and what God wants is for us to be in heaven with Him. Sometimes we, we get this mindset that, that God kind of wants to dangle us over hell. But that's not what He does. See, here's the reality. The reality is we're already going there. Jesus said that the wrath of God abides on us. We're already going there. We've already thumbed our nose at God. We've already said, I want to live my life as if He doesn't exist. We've all already done that. We're already going there. God's not dangling us over hell. He's saying, don't go. He's standing in front of us and saying, don't go. It's like there's this cliff that we're running for as fast as we can because it feels warm to us and the fires of hell are right over that cliff and we're running for that. And he's standing before us and saying, don't go. He wants us to be with him. He created us so that we could know him. Don't you know that the best thing that God can give you is not this great life on earth, though every good thing on this earth is a gift from God, but the best thing he can give you is himself. see, when we talk about the same hope, we're talking about that we're believing. We, hope is, is a good expectation. That's what hope is. I expect this good thing to happen in the future. That's what it means to have a hope. So, so when we talk about hope, we're talking about what Jesus is praying for us. Lord, I want them to expect to be with me. I'm praying that you would make sure that they are with me. And guess what the Father says to that prayer? He says, yeah, I'll do it. Any of us who are willing to trust in Jesus, he'll do it for us. The hope we have is towards this eternal, loving presence of God himself. This is how the book ends. This is how the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible ends. Listen to this. It says, And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look! God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. Listen, He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. The picture of heaven we get yeah, there's a description of the streets of gold, and we get excited. Oh, streets of gold. Don't you understand what that's trying to say? Does anybody here get excited about tarmac? 
Ooh, look, tarmac. Wasn't that nice? Tarmac. Don't you realize that in heaven, in the place of God's abode, the cheapest material is gold. It doesn't matter. You walk on it. We build with silver and precious stones. It doesn't matter. Those things obviously represent something else as well. But the point is this. What's glorious about heaven is God is there. And not just some sort of glowing being. Ooh, what's that? God himself as a person, in the person of Jesus, we see some in some mysterious way, we see God just as he's like, and that God doesn't just go, how's it going, or welcome and bow. He comes to us and wipes away all our tears himself. Let me ask you, if any of you started crying here today, and I went up to you and I go, oh, and I wiped a tear from your, from your eye, what would you do? What are you doing? Don't touch me. But if my wife or kids had that and I did that, they would be comforted because they know that I love them, because we have a relationship, and what means anything to them is that I would actually engage with them in, in that point. Don't you see the picture that's being written here? It's this picture of God living with us and taking away all the things that make our existence horrible, all the things that we've done. He does this. The text goes on to say this in Revelation. And the one sitting on the throne said this. Guess who's the one sitting on the throne? It's Jesus. He says, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Do you realize that the scripture doesn't present heaven as just like pie in the sky by and by, just some kind of nice thought that maybe keeps you going? It's, it's, it describes heaven as the ultimate reality, the goal of our life. The scripture says of our resurrection, when, we, when our bodies are changed from these corruptible bodies to incorruptible bodies that live forever with God in heaven, it says of the resurrection, if the resurrection isn't so, if we don't have heaven, then people should feel sorry for us as Christians because that's our, that's our hope. Don't you realize this is our hope? This beautiful, eternal, loving presence of God forever. Jesus is praying we would see this. This is what unifies us. Why would I want to sacrifice for you when you're not sacrificing for me? Because not only has Christ done that for me, but also, listen, there's a reward waiting for us because of it. It pleases the one that's going to wipe away every tear. I believe that that's the life I'm looking for, and if I believe that's the life I'm looking for, then this life is about preparation for that one. He goes on to say, verse 25, I'm almost done. He prays, O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. This is interesting. If we're talking about this, that Jesus is praying for a unity that comes as we continue in the same hope, it's a hope that is, exists even if the whole world system is willfully ignorant of it. In other words, the hope of heaven that we have because of what Jesus has done for us, that reality of eternity and the loving presence of God, that's there whether people believe it or not. I mean, aren't you glad of that? Isn't it good news that even if everybody else thinks you're crazy, it's still real? 
Sometimes we think, okay, God, when can we have that? We're wanting so much just to be in your presence. What are you waiting for? It feels like less and less people actually want to believe in you. Want to believe, Jesus, that you are who you said you are. What are we waiting for? This is what he's waiting for. Listen. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise. That is the promise of heaven. As some people think. No, He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That is to turn to Him. So I want to really briefly address any of you here who don't yet know this Jesus. He's praying, he's saying, Lord, the world has not known you, but I've known you and these have known that you sent me. So he's being clear. There's many people who don't recognize Jesus as he is. And I want to really challenge you on something. And, I, and I, I admit it, I am kind of putting you on the spot a bit if you're not a Christian, but I'm not calling you out. I'm not asking you to stand up. Stand up who's not a Christian and I want to call you out. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying I want you to consider something if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe He is who He said He is. Why not? Seriously, why not? Why don't you believe? What is it about what the Scripture says that you find so far-fetched? What is it about the person of Jesus that you go, nah, it's not for me? You know, in my experience, I've been a, a pastor now for, I've been a minister now for 26 years. And in my experience, when I talk to people about their intellectual hang-ups, they're real. I mean, those things are real. They can keep us from, you know, believing. They can keep us from thinking, well, can we really trust the Bible or... Do people actually rise from the dead and are miracles real? And they ask these kind of questions and they're legitimate questions to ask. They're totally real. But it's interesting, even when you give them the answers, they usually just don't, often they don't want to believe. And when it comes down to it, when I say, why don't you want to believe? When they're really honest, you know what they say? Because I don't want somebody else telling me what to do. This is how we are. Do you realize this is why we create religion? We create religion because rather than having God telling us what to do, we can tell ourselves what to do. We create some standard that says, okay, here's the standard to be right. And we think, oh, you know what, look at that. I am a good person after all. I met my own standard. But you know what's really funny about that too? And again, I'm challenging you to be honest about this. Whether you're a Jesus follower or not, all of you be honest about this. Whatever standard you hold up as, this is the way we should live, be honest, you don't reach that standard. Even if you make up the standard, you know you don't reach the standard. What is that? What is it about human nature that keeps us from even reaching standards that we make up for ourselves, let alone the standard that God lays out for us through Jesus? It's because there's something so broken about us, unless God was to initiate the relationship, unless God was to send His only Son to get our attention. Unless God was to send out His people to call people to come listen about His only Son, we would never believe. See, if you're here today, for whatever reason, you came with a friend, you came as a guest, and you're still in a place where you're like, I'm not too sure about this Jesus stuff. I am challenging you. I am saying to you, listen, 
You might think we're nuts. You might think there's nothing behind me. There's no hell that we're going to fall into. You're just a bit of a crazy American. You might think that, but I'm challenging you. Okay, why won't you think about it? Why wouldn't you believe it? What are your questions? What are the intellectual hang-ups? What are you unwilling to let go of? You see, God says, I, wanna, I want you to experience my love. The only thing that's keeping you from experiencing my love is your own sin that you love. And if you're willing to turn from that sin and put your trust in me, I will forgive that sin. I will cleanse you from all the things you've done wrong. I will bring you into a permanent relationship with me. And I will change you from the inside out. I will give you new appetites, new desires, new longings, new strength so that you will be able to love the way I do. I'll do that for you. That's what he says. Jesus says, Lord, the world hasn't known you, but these have known you. He prays this because he wants others to know him. Lastly, verse 26, and as I read this last verse, I'm going to ask those who are going to pass out the elements of communion to get those elements ready to be distributed in a second. But he says, I have declared to them your name, notice, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. What's he talking about here? You know what Jesus said in the end of Matthew's gospel? He says, and... He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So right before Jesus ascends to heaven, he says to his disciples, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. But then he ascends to heaven, and they're kind of going, you said you wouldn't leave, and you just left, you know. But he had told them he was going to send his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would dwell in them. See, when we're talking about a unity that God develops as we continue in the same hope, it's not a hope that we're just kind of waiting for God, to, Jesus to come back. We are waiting for that. But while we wait, guess what? Jesus dwells in us by His Holy Spirit. And He teaches us to love Him. He teaches us that we can trust His love for us. And He teaches us to love each other. He does that by His Holy Spirit. I wonder if anyone here... is wrestling with whether or not they can believe this. I wonder for, for you who, who are normal churchgoers, you know, do you believe Jesus? Do you trust him when he says these things? Do you trust him? For you who aren't normal churchgoers, maybe it's been a while since you've been at church or maybe you just, you're not a church person at all and this God stuff seems a bit silly to you. Why? Jesus prays this prayer, right, this prayer of ultimate confidence right before he's going to be crucified. And I love the fact that we saw it in verse 20, right? I pray for those who will believe. How did he know that people would believe? <laughs> because he was supremely confident that the Father would answer his prayer. He knew that God had a plan that he will make sure comes to pass. My question to you is, do you want to be part of that plan? In one sense you are, whether you want to be or not, but... God's desire is that you would come to know Him. His plan is that you would be with Him forever if you're willing to put your faith in Jesus. Do you want that? 
He wants that for you. In just a minute, we're going to pass out little pieces of unleavened bread, cracker. It's got no yeast in it. And little cups of grape juice. It's this thing we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And it's a, it's a tradition that we keep as Christians throughout the world keep in different ways to remember what Jesus did. Because the cracker, you'll notice it's broken in the pieces, is a representation of His body that was broken for us. Jesus chose to be broken for us, that our brokenness could be made whole. But also we drink this juice, because the juice represents this idea of, of grapes being crushed. When we, when, we, when we read in Scripture about like a cup, often a cup represents a cup of wine, which represents the, the crushing of something or the pouring out of something, specifically the pouring out of God's wrath, God's judgment. When we take the little bit of communion, this little bit of grape juice, we're remembering that Jesus, through His sacrifice, was taken on God's wrath. He drank that cup. And we're recognizing that we're not appointed to God's wrath anymore because Jesus took on that wrath for us. So, so you can see, even though it's just grape juice and cracker, it's a profound thing that we're remembering. Which is why the Bible says, before you partake, before you eat that cracker or drink this juice, you need to examine yourself. Because to take it in an unworthy manner is to snub your nose at God. And I think even those of you who don't yet believe, you would say, no, that's not a cool thing to do. It's not a respectful thing to do. So we're asking if, if, if that's not where you're at. If you think, I don't know, I don't believe this stuff. I'm not sure about this stuff yet. I don't know about this Jesus stuff. Hey, you know what? We're still glad you're here. We hope you join us for bringing Sarah and enjoy some good conversations and you feel the freedom to ask any questions you have. But just know that the communion is not for you. The communion is for those of us who say, Jesus, I believe you. I believe your words. I believe the testimony that you gave through your apostles. I believe that when you were crucified, you were paying for my sins. You were appeasing God's wrath that should be against me. I believe that you rose from the dead, guaranteed that I'll be risen from the dead. And I believe you ascended the Father, and that guarantees that the Father will accept me. I believe that all that you did for me was enough and that I'm loved by God the way you're loved by God. That's what communion is.